Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Burning Podcast from the American Burning Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and we at the ABA are very excited about the recent publication of the book, Good Birders Still Don't Wear White. It is a sequel of sorts to Good Birders Don't Wear White, which first came out 10 years ago, if you can believe it. Uh, What it is, is a book of short essays about birding, about different birders' passion for this hobby, about the things that they are most interested in. Uh, Features many, many celebrity birders. Uh, You can't see me, but I'm using air quotes for celebrities, uh, such that any birder can really be considered a celebrity uh, in our little community, but um, well-known birders, perhaps that's a better way to put it. Uh, It is particularly notable for the ABA for a couple reasons. One is that there are no fewer than 10 essays written by ABA staff and board, including one from yours truly. Uh, So maybe I'm a little biased in saying that I think it's a really fun book, but there there are a lot of voices in there that are well worth your time. And more, with every purchase of Good Birders Still Don't Wear White, a small portion goes to the ABA uh, for our conservation and community programming, so you are helping us out too. Uh, And a big thanks to the publisher, uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, for that, and to editor Lisa White in particular. So you can purchase it wherever books are sold, but we at the ABA are also hosting a drawing this month. We are giving away 20 copies of the book to 20 birders who join the ABA or renew their membership before the end of this month. That is March 31st, 2017, so you can potentially get it that way too. Uh, We have a really exciting show for you this time around. Back by popular demand, Greg Neese and Ted Floyd return to talk about bird ID and taxonomy. This time, the topic is juncos, those little snowbirds that come in a dizzying array of subspecies, forms, variations. Uh, And we wanted to get this out before those juncos start heading back north uh, or back up into the mountains, as they likely will across much of the continent in the next month. But it's a really great time to be on the lookout for variation among juncos now, and hopefully Ted and Greg will be able to help you with that. But first, bird vocalization guru Nathan Peeplo is with me to talk about his new field guide. It is a, a very different sort of field guide, one that focuses specifically on bird vocalizations, and it has a really unique way of doing so. It is the Peterson Field Guide to Bird Sounds of Eastern North America. It's a really neat book, and Nathan will join me right after your rare birds. This is your rare bird focus for the middle part of March 2017. One of the more interesting and a little bit sad stories of the period involved a young ivory gull discovered a couple weeks ago in Flint, Michigan. The bird was seen by many birders over a weekend, but unfortunately succumbed to apparent illness the next Monday. Uh, birds from the far north, particularly seabirds, are especially susceptible to the fungus aspergillus, which causes respiratory problems, especially when the bird is stressed, as vagrant birds can be. Uh, not stressed by birders, I should hasten to point out, as there were no reports of bad behavior here, but just stressed from being a long way away from where they are supposed to be. In any case, the individual was recovered and is on its way to a Michigan museum, which is the best possible scenario under the circumstances. 2017 has been an exceptional year for Bananaquit in southern Florida as two individuals were seen over this period, different birds in Broward and Miami-Dade counties. An interesting thing about Bananaquit is that they come in two varieties, dark-throated and light-throated. All of these Florida birds are the light-throated variety, likely the Bahamensis subspecies from, appropriately, the Bahamas, which is the most likely source for Bananaquit in southeast Florida. 
One first record to report from Utah, where a common crane was photographed among a flock of sandhill cranes. It's only been a couple years since Texas and New Mexico recorded their first records of this widespread Eurasian species. It suggests that other places in the interior west should be on the lookout for these birds among migrating sandhills, particularly this time of year when sandhills are moving in big numbers. Those are only a few of the rare birds seen in the ABA area these last couple weeks. For the entire rundown, please check out the ABA blog, blog blog.aba.org, every Friday morning for our Rare Bird Alert. And for all the latest news on ABA area rare birds, please join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare. Uh, my guest today is Nathan Peeplo. You might know him from the excellent ear birding blog where he writes about bird sounds of all types. His new book, The Field Guide to Bird Sounds of Eastern North America, the latest in the expansive Peterson Field Guide series, came out earlier this month and it's available now. Nathan, thanks for taking some time to join me. Thanks for having me. So your book, it's its really cool. It's filled with all these uh, wonderful spectrograms, these visual representations of bird sounds. Uh, the very first field guide that I ever used when I started birding was that Chandler Robbins Golden Guide, which in- included a lot of spectrograms in it. Um, that was the first place I can remember encountering this this way of visualizing bird vocalizations. When did you first encounter spectrograms, and, and what do you like so much about them? Well, I encountered them same as you in the Golden Guide. The Golden Guide was my first uh, book growing up uh, that introduced me to birds. Uh, and, uh, and so I've known what, what a spectrogram was for a long time. And I studied bird sounds like everybody does if they're interested in birds, uh, you know, just to try and learn identification. But I wasn't all that good at it. You know, I, I just have a, a, an auditory memory that's full of holes. I, I keep forgetting uh, the sound. I can remember the sound, but I can't remember which bird makes the sound or, or I can't remember... If you, if you give me a bird, I can't remember what it's supposed to sound like in my head. Um, so it was really, uh, it wasn't until uh, about 10 years ago when I, when I finally started really trying to figure out how to help myself learn bird sounds. Uh, and that's really why I wrote the book. Uh, it, these, these spectrograms are really great, but they really seem to have you know, fallen out of favor uh, in conventional field guides. You don't see them that often anymore. Uh, do you think that there's a reason that that, that happened? Oh, yeah. There, there's, a, there's a very clear reason why that happened. And, and actually, the reason why that happened is the Golden Guide. Um, when the Golden Guide came out, it was, uh, it was very well-reviewed, but the reviews of the Golden Guide basically looked at the spectrogram part of it as kind of a failed experiment. And the real problem with the spectrograms in the Gold Guide was that they were they were old school sonograms, not not modern spectrograms. So they were high contrast black and white instead of grayscale. And they were also reproduced really, really small. And so you you just could not see a lot of fine detail. And so it uh, it became difficult to figure out what you were actually looking at. And a lot of people got frustrated with them. And then they decided that spectrograms were too hard to read. But modern spectrograms give you a lot more information. There is a learning curve on learning how to translate the shapes into the sounds. But once you learn it, uh, modern spectrograms are much easier to read than those in the Golden Guide, especially if they're large enough that you can see the details. Yeah. You know, I took piano lessons at a young age, uh, took them for a while, played music as a kid. 
Um, and so I could read music and, you know, spectrograms seem to me like, like music on a staff, but, but yeah. bird sounds. And so I was able to sort of internalize what those sounds meant maybe better than, than someone who doesn't have that sort of background. Absolutely. It's the exact same principle. Uh, it, it reads from left to right, the high notes are at the top, the low notes are at the bottom, but, uh, you have to learn the shapes on the spectrogram and how those, uh, how those correspond to the quality of a, of a note. But I find in my seminars that people who have learned to read music can learn to read spectrograms in under an hour. People who have not learned to read music can still learn to read spectrograms, but it takes them a little longer. Right. You, you've talked elsewhere a little bit about um, the sort of auditory field marks for, for people to use when, when seeking to identify an unusual bird call or a bird song that they hear. It's a, it's a really neat idea. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that? When we talk about how to identify birds by sight... We have a whole vocabulary that we agree on in terms of colors, the parts of the bird, uh, different, different shapes and things. Uh, so if you say that bird has two yellow wing bars, uh, we know where to look. Uh, most people don't know what those are, but birders have learned what wing bars are and, and what they look like and where to look for them on a bird. What I'm trying to do in my book is establish a vocabulary so that you can listen to the fine details of a sound and understand what you're listening for mm -hmm. when you're talking about sounds. There, there really does seem to be this lack of sort of an, an objective vocabulary for talking about birds. You know, in, in field guides, it seems like sometimes field guide authors kind of fall over themselves to be very creative to describe those birds. And, and while that's, you know, really great from a writing standpoint and a, and a creative standpoint, it's sometimes not especially useful from a learning standpoint, you know, just my perspective on this. I you agree. sort of, you sort of see, seek to uh, establish this vocabulary. What sort of words do you think that uh, birders need to know when they're, they're thinking about a vocalization or describing a vocalization? Well, there's, there's a, a, a lot of words that, that we already use. And uh, what I've been trying to do in, when I wrote my field guide, I, I really tried not to invent too many new words. I tried to use words that we already use, but I tried to define them uh, objectively. And the way to do that is to figure out if you're hearing something and it sounds like it's um, uh, plaintive, you know, th then the, the question is to, to look at all of the spectrograms of all the sounds we describe that way and figure out what they all have in common. If you can hear it, you should be able to see it on the spectrogram. Anything in the sound you can hear is there, visible. You just have to figure out where it is. And then you can define your vocabulary in terms of what you can see instead of just what you can hear. And that makes it objective. So how did you um, treat birds that perhaps have real, a lot of variation in their songs? I'm thinking of things like, obviously, you know, Mockingbird, but also, you know, American Goldfinch or, or uh, Yellowbursted Chat birds that uh, they go in a lot of different directions, it seems like. So how would, how would you go about, uh, how did you go about looking at those in your book? Well, that's one of the huge challenges. Uh, and, and really you have to, you have to identify mockingbirds and chats and goldfinches, uh, the way that mockingbirds and chats and goldfinches identify each other. Uh, mockingbirds and chats will imitate other birds but they, they don't imitate other birds in order to be mistaken for those other birds. They always want to be recognized as a mockingbird or as a chat. 
So they take the sounds of other species and they arrange them in specific patterns that are specific to mockingbirds or specific to chats. Uh, and all birds that imitate do this. And all birds that have really large repertoires do this. And so you have to then think not in terms of the actual notes, but in terms of the patterns in which the notes are arranged, because that's where the species-specific information is. Yeah. What about birds that don't have a lot of a lot of variation? You've got uh, things like gulls, herons. Um, what do you think that we can learn about bird vocalizations from these birds that don't have a lot of variation? Well, the first thing is <laughs> that gull. You you picked gulls and herons. And those are, those are two groups of birds that have fascinating vocalizations, uh, particularly gulls. If you go down and, and watch gulls in a parking lot and listen to them, uh, I, I remember the first time I actually decided to go record gulls and spent an, a whole morning with Western and Hearman's gulls in California. And I was blown away by the diversity of sounds and behaviors and how the how the sounds and the behaviors went together. And by the end of the morning, I could figure out what was going on in the social lives of those birds just by watching them. Gulls have actually pretty large repertoires. You know, each of the, most of the large gull species in my book, they take up a whole page, just like a goldfinch or a meadowlark. We, we've done a little bit of a disservice to some of these birds by thinking of them, these non-passerines, right? By thinking of them as, not having much variation or not having much to say. Herons are trickier. They they have a, a huge repertoire of displays. And a lot of those displays come with particular sounds in different species. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to cover them in a great detail in my book because we just don't have enough recordings. Huh. Yeah, I guess no one really thinks, uh, thinks to go out and sit in a heron rookery and record herons. That's the problem, yeah. yeah. But there's a lot going on with herons, and there's a lot going on with, with gulls. There's a lot going on with ducks. I mean, if you've ever been to the Arctic and seen what happens with shorebirds on the, on the breeding grounds uh, or heard what happens when shorebirds sing on the breeding grounds, you know that, that non-passerines are just as fascinating, if not more fasc- fascinating, than passerines are. Is there a group of birds um, that you cover or, or don't cover uh, in this book that, that you think, aside from herons and gulls, obviously, that you think that we need to know more about, that we need to to work harder on figuring out the variations and vocalizations of this of this group? Well, the, the first answer to your question is we need to know more about all bird sounds. I think there's a, a misunderstanding on the part of a lot of people. A lot of people think we know a lot more about bird sounds than we actually do. Uh, and that's one of the fascinating things about studying sounds and making recordings that I love about it is that it's, it's, it's difficult to go out and take a photograph that's never been taken before. It's, it's much, much easier to go out with a microphone, even in your own backyard in the United States and get a recording of a sound that's never been recording recorded before. Have you found that people have been, are more interested these days in, in recording these bird vocalizations? A lot of that is because it's, it's so much easier now than it ever used to be. I mean, I, I have gone out and taken recordings with my, with my iPhone um, that have been actually, you know, fair recordings, not high quality, but certainly enough to figure out what's going on in there. Do you, do you see that sort of interest increasing among birders? Yes, absolutely. I think that uh, 
the advent of the Zeno Canto website uh, was one of the drivers that, that really got a lot of people to start making their own bird sounds, uploading their own bird sounds. And now you can attach recordings to eBird checklists. And that, that has, you know, that has brought a lot of people into the recording fold that, that I, I'm super excited by that. Yeah. That's, that's actually what motivated me most, most of anything yeah. is, is putting my, putting those vocalizations yeah. on, on eBird. I think last time I checked, uh, photographs were being uploaded to eBird. Uh, well, I, you'll have to double check uh, with them on this, but photographs are uploaded to eBird at a rate, I think, uh, 40 times greater than, than the rate of recordings. So we still have a ways to go. So uh, I'll go back to the book. Uh, this is, this is a, it's an enormous amount of work that you've, you've put into this. Uh, where did you get the vocalizations that you used for this book? There are 5,500 sound files. Mm -hmm. The sounds that accompany the book are on uh, a website where they are available to anybody for free. Uh, and that website is petersonbirdsounds.com. And of those, I recorded about a quarter myself. And uh, roughly half of them come from the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology, who partnered with me on this project. Uh, and the rest, uh, the other quarter, come from individual recordists that I contacted and uh, and contracted with for the use of their sounds. Um, what did you find to be the most difficult vocalizations to find? Oh, gosh, the most difficult vocalizations to find. Gosh, there were a few things that came down to the wire. The uh, common grackles have a courtship song. Uh the males give a, a, a close range courtship display uh, to the females. Uh, and it consists of the normal song, you know, that squeaky gate thing that they do when they puff up their feathers, but repeated at, at rapid uh, pace with these high pitched whistles in between. And I found two examples of it on YouTube, but I could not get either of those uh, YouTube authors to to respond to my request to use the sounds, and it came right down to the wire. I thought I was going to have to leave it out of the book, and then I was going through a, a digitized tape of wood ducks that uh, Eric Hops had had donated to the Macaulay Library, and he had put out a microphone next to a pond and just left it there. And as I was listening, in the middle of that recording of wood ducks. Uh, a pair of common grackles landed right in front of the microphone, and the male did this this courtship display. That's and wild. It came in beautifully loud and clear, <laughs> and I said, "There it is." That's the one. That's yep. really neat. Thanks so much, uh, Nathan. Uh, once again, his book is Field Guide to Bird Sounds of Eastern North America. It came out earlier this month from the Peterson Field Guide series. Are you doing a Western guide? Yep, working on it as we speak. Great. We'll look forward to that one. Um, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Nate. I'm Greg Neese here with Birding Magazine editor Ted Floyd. Hello. Hey, Ted. Gone. You know, the last time we did this, we talked about white cheek geese, and uh, Nate suggested that there be a name for our little segment, and he came up with <coughs> Greg and Ted's excellent adventure 
that's spelled I D venture. What, <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, I'm looking forward to, uh, an ongoing series of these adventures with you. And for that matter, with the rest of the, uh, the listening world out there in, in Burdom. <laughs> okay. You want to talk about one of the most widespread feeder birds in the ABA area, juncos. There's a lot of subtlety to pay attention to. So give us, give us the Cliff Notes version of dark-eyed junco. Right. So the bird called the dark-eyed junco is actually a species of sparrow. There are, I don't know, 25-ish sparrows in the ABA area. Most of them are the classic little brown jobs, the LBJs, but the, the junco is a very colorful and very uh, boldly contrasting bird, uh, blacks and whites and even pinks and oranges and, and buff colors. And all across the very extensive breeding range of the dark-eyed junco, you have very distinctive and discrete populations. Uh, they've actually in the past been treated as separate species. And uh, the, the names that they get, depending on where you are in the ABA area, and I hope I don't forget any, any of them here, are the slate-colored junco, the Oregon junco, the gray-headed junco, the pink-sided junco, the white-winged junco. And then when you get sort of into the uh, more advanced uh, version of junco identification, the Cassiar junco and the Ridgeways junco. So you can tell from all those names and colors and body parts that the different kinds of dark-eyed juncos, again, they're all considered one species, the dark-eyed junco, uh, certainly correspond to different patterns and shapes and colors. You know, living, living in, the, in the Great Lakes, we have slate-colored junco. And occasionally we'll get, uh, compared to what we normally see, spectacularly patterned Oregon junco with the bright rufous body and black hood. But what people have, have really been interested in are, are the Cassiar juncos, which I know we're diving right into the, the deep end of the pool here. But uh, tell me a little bit about that. So in the eastern part of the ABA area, you know, Nebraska eastward, you basically get one kind of junco in, in the winter months, and, and that's the slate-colored junco. As you mentioned, you do sometimes get the Oregon junco, that very spectacular western bird with the uh, executioner's hood. But here's the challenge. The Oregon junco and the slate-colored junco's ranges overlap extensively in central Canada, and where they overlap, you get intermediate birds that sort of look a little bit like a slate-colored and a little bit like an Oregon, and those intermediate birds were given the name Cassiar Junco. It refers to a place in Canada, so it's Cassiar, not Cassiars. And this Cassiar Junco, sort of a uh, an intermediate between the slate-colored and the Oregon, is a bird that is apparently widespread, although in fairly small numbers, across the eastern United States and, and probably you know up into well into eastern Canada as well in the winter months. It's a tricky bird because. As I said, it's intermediate between slate-colored and, and Oregon and get almost sort of philosophical when you ask the question, well, is this just a variant of a slate-colored junco or is this actually a Cassiar junco? So as you said, we're kind of getting into the uh, the thorn woods in that one and uh, it is a, a challenge for those who really delve deeply into the matter of the uh, of junco taxonomy and identification. So we've got, uh, in addition, white-winged. Yeah, the white-winged junco is maybe the most intriguing of them all. It appears to be the most um, reproductively isolated from, from all the juncos. It breeds only in the Black Hills of South Dakota and then some 
very sort of limited adjoining areas of Wyoming and uh, the Nebraska panhandle. It's a it's a big junco. It's probably the biggest junco. It looks like a sort of overgrown and pale slate color to junco. So the one that's familiar to Eastern birders. And as you might uh, imagine, given its name, it has two white wing bars, a, a big sort of gray junco, white wing bars, nice black lures and a lot of white in the tail. It's a, a very easily encountered bird in the Black Hills, the uh, Nebraska uh, Pine Ridge, uh, far uh, sort of east central Wyoming during the breeding months. And then in winter, it does something really interesting. It migrates the entire population to the foothills of the Front Range, in, mainly in Colorado, in a very narrow elevational band from about 6,000 to 8,000 feet. It's common in the Ponderosa Pine Forests and rarely detected elsewhere. So one of the most specialized birds of the ABA area and uh, a U.S. endemic. Slate-colored can frequently have um, white fringing on the wing coverts and uh, look like white wing juncos, but when you really take a hard look at them, every one of them turns out to be a slate-colored and not a white-winged. Right. The sort of credible detections of white-winged juncos outside the usual breeding and wintering ranges are, you know, I think you can count them on on, on, on one hand. Uh, they, they, they certainly do wander. They, they migrate, but they rarely wander off their known uh, breeding, migratory, and, and, and wintering grounds. Uh, yeah, the white-winged junco has a very limited range. So then there's the gray-headed uh, Junko, which is really quite spectacular. Yeah, and I, I wish it had a different name, to be honest with you. Uh, the gray-headed Junko, like the other Juncos, has different subspecies, one of which is called the red-backed Junko. That's what that bird should be called because all the, junko, all the Juncos are more or less gray-headed. What's so distinctive about the gray-headed Junko, both the northern and the southern subspecies of the gray-headed Junko, is that it's got this really stunning sort of orange-pink upside-down triangle on the back. It just sort of stands out at a tremendous distance. When you see the bird flushing from behind, you often think you're looking at it maybe like a brightly colored finch or even warbler or something like that. It's so brightly colored. And that, uh, again, sort of orange-pink triangle on the back is the standout field mark on the gray-headed junco. But now when you start talking about females and juvenile birds, it gets really messy. You know, I've been fortunate enough to see flocks in Colorado that have all seven of the uh, named sort of field identifiable juncos in Colorado, let's say maybe two or 300 birds in the flock. And we can put names on, you know, 50 or 60 or maybe 100, but certainly another half. And this is for people who know juncos have to sort of go unidentified. We say, well, could be a female cassiar, could be a female slate colored. We're not really sure. There are a lot of birds that are truly intermediate and others that just can't be identified. So in a big flock, you'll see nice standout birds, you know, just really obvious Oregons and gray-headeds and pink-sideds and so forth. But you'll also see a lot of birds, typically younger and, and female birds, that are very difficult to assign to one subspecies or another. Where do the, uh, where do the juncos stand as far as AOS, formerly AOU, checklisting? Um, I haven't heard any uh, any rumbling that there's any talk of splitting them up again. To, to, to make a, a very, very long story short, so we have this tremendous morphological and geographic variation in the dark-eyed junco. In the past, uh, at least five and perhaps more than five distinct or separate species have been described. Now we believe that they're all one species, the dark-eyed junco, uh, but a tremendously variable and geographically very widespread species. As you said, there seems to be no particular 
handwriting on the wall that they're going to, to split them out again, you know, perhaps elevate white wing to full species form a, a status. There, there just seems to be no indication of that. In fact, and this really surprised me, there is a proposal to the AOS uh, just this year, so it'll be voted on, I guess, later on this spring or summer, to lump the dark-eyed junco with its sort of Mexican counterpart, the yellow-eyed junco. That's a species that uh, enters the ABA area in southwestern New Mexico and southeastern Arizona. As you can probably imagine, it's got yellow eyes, and that distinguishes it from all of the dark-eyed juncos. Uh, in my mind, it exhibits significant behavioral and vocal uh, differentiation from the dark-eyed junco, but I gather there must be good new genetic evidence to suggest that the dark-eyed and yellow-eyed juncos are so close that they ought to be lumped. So if that becomes the case, then this whole question of the uh, this one species of junco will become even more complex with the addition of the Mexican taxa to what we now call the dark-eyed junco complex. The uh, the junco complex Facebook group, which is a, a private group that has some 250 members, is is dedicated solely to everything juncos. Yeah, it's a, it's a brand new group. Um, you, you said it's private, which of course is technically true. That's sort of a Facebook term. I want to hasten to point out that anybody in uh, good standing on social media is welcome to join the uh, the, the, the Junko group. Just send a, uh, a note to the admin and they'll get you on there right away. I believe the name of the group is The Junko Complex. I'm pretty yeah. sure it's the only such named group on, on Facebook. And it's I, basically... I I think you can take that to the bank. It's a it's a place for discussing the juncos uh, of of the world. So there's a heavy bias toward the dark-eyed junco, but if you discovered or noticed something about the volcano junco on your trip to Costa Rica, you could ask about or post an insight regarding the volcano junco. So it's all things junco, sort of heavily um, emphasizing photos, but uh, questions, discussion, and in particular, tricky junco. So it's not uncommon for somebody to photograph a bird that just doesn't fit into one category or another, put the bird up there, and then the uh, experts, semi-experts, and the rest of us weigh in on what the heck this junco is. Well, hey, Ted, thanks for taking some time out of your afternoon, and uh, we'll be talking again soon, um, maybe about gulls next time, something simple. Uh, simple indeed. Ha ha. Very good. Well, uh, we'll uh, pursue that, I guess, during our next uh, adventure then. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. Talk to you later. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization for active birders of all stripes and skill levels in North America and beyond. We offer a great many free resources for birders in the U.S. and Canada, of which this podcast is just one. If you enjoy what we do, please consider joining us. I mentioned the membership drawing at the top of the episode. We're holding a drawing for 20 copies of Good Birders Still Don't Wear White for 20 birders who join the ABA or renew their membership before March 31st of this year. So there's no better time to join. President of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from David Hartley and Greg Neese. John's band, The Hangabouts, does the music. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders and Twitter at ABA, not to be confused with ABA Contive, which as best as I can determine is a Venezuelan internet provider. I know this because we hear about it whenever the internet goes out in Venezuela. If you've made it this far, I hope you enjoy what we're doing. If you do, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps people find us. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time. <laughs>